All right, everyone, welcome to episode 96 of the Great Divide podcast. And if you're just listening to this, um, what I'm about to sort of talk about won't make any difference to you, but we may release a video version of this at some point too, in which case you'll be able to actually see me and our guests here as we do this introduction. But as always, Svein is with me from Norway. Hello, Svein. Hey, 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 how are we? Good. And our audio quality is a little different today. Um, that's because we are doing our first ever Zoom sourced podcast. Never again. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try to never do it again. But I will say that it was uh, it was certainly worth it, um, considering the people we spoke to. But before we get to that, we've got um, another couple of guests here and who, who dropped in to sort of be flies on the wall and occasionally ask a question or two in this really historic chat that we just had. Um, and that is, of course, our benefactor, John Gouveia. How you doing, John, from Parts Unknown? Ahoy, hoy. <laughs> and then we have another special guest that, that just happened to be able to join us shortly before we recorded, and that is Stuart Menzies. Good to see you, Stuart. Yeah, and thanks very much for the very short notice, um, spontaneous invite, Tom. Appreciate it. No, it. I, we, we are excited. And, and listen, I needed to get this confirmation. So when Svein has said your name in the past, he said Stuart Mangus. So is it, is it Mangus or Menzies? Because I used to say it Menzies, and then I heard Mangus, and I thought, oh, I, I need to say Mangus. But then Can't I heard just Stuart trust say, what I say. <laughs> and then I heard <laughs> Stuart say Menzies. So I, I, which do you prefer? It's a, that's a, that's another four-hour podcast, Tom. So my surname is my surname is pronounced Mengies. Um, I just say Menzies for people who are not aware that it's pronounced Mengies. Okay. Go. I got you. I got you. So that's probably like my struggles with Swine's last name over the years too. So I get it. But anyway, um, it's great to have everyone here. We have a great, really exciting show today. We are speaking with the two two of the gentlemen who um, were a part of the very first incarnation of Big Country, really important parts of that incarnation of the band, and that is Pete and Alan Wishart. And um, what a thrill it was to be able to speak with them. We've already had the conversation. We're just kind of doing this after the fact, but um, we're going to lead into that in just a moment. And uh, I want to thank Bruce for setting this up and being kind of the, the mediator between getting us in touch. He was going to join us, but he couldn't. His his duties with big country still out there after all these years and the skids prevented him from joining us but i know he's going to listen and hopefully bruce you will enjoy it and thanks for making it possible and thank you very much for to the wisher brothers so um sit back and enjoy this conversation about the earliest days of big country uh really fascinating stuff and then we'll be back to have kind of a brief wrap up so here we go Shot! So just from my perspective, um, without going into a long soliloquy here, you know, as a big country fan, I'll never forget in the early days finding out that there was a, a version of big country that existed before the one that I knew, you know, with Tony and Mark. And I have to admit, when there was a book called A Certain Chemistry that had a photo of you guys in it, and that was the first time I saw that original lineup. And I was obsessed with that lineup, just knowing what what had happened, you know, what, did they, what did they sound like? So... We obviously want to talk to you guys about that, but I think the best way to start, and you guys can just start however you see fit, is to uh, take us through those early days for you, even before you joined Big Country. What was, and I guess back to that 70s period when punk was really starting to kick in, um, what was the 
seen like in Dunfermline? And how did you become interested in music and how did that evolve for you guys? I know Alan will have his own take on all this, but I mean, Dunfermline was one of the most exciting hotbeds of music in the late 1970s. It was just a fantastic scene. Everybody was in a band. Alan and I could play a bit and we had our band called Subject. And that was kicking around the same time as Bruce had The Delinquents, which later became The Delinks and Eurosect. And there was God knows how many bands. And I don't know how many shows we played with multiple bands around Dunfermline. But the big thrill for us was always when Stuart or Richard Jobson from The Skids turned up to, to watch us. And we got to know Stuart quite well and chatted to him. And we were always delighted when he was there and any sort of encouragement he gave us and any sort of flattery, which was always quite good with Stuart, who was always such a nice guy when he came to giving out compliments. And I think the big turning point for us when we started to take things just a little bit more seriously is when uh, we were asked to support the, the Skids back in 1978, it must have been Alan, I think, and it was in the Music Hall in Aberdeen. Was, we thought we were uh, special being picked out to support the Skids at this uh, really important show when Into the Valley had been such a huge hit. We'd also asked Bruce along, so the Delinks were also playing, So and, and we were third on the bill to supporting Bruce and the Delinks. And I think it was from there that, I mean, I particularly developed a, a close friendship with Stuart. And I remember, for example, being um, taken up to Town Hill when he lived in Town Hill to hear a version of The Absolute Game before it was released. And I couldn't believe sitting here with Stuart Adamson listening to this before it was actually released and been absolutely thrilled by that experience and knocked out, obviously, by hearing this record. And um, I think what happened from there was when Stuart's time with the Skids came to an end, like he was looking to see who was available to be in the new band. And he came, he approached me one day and says, Pete, what about you joining me uh, with this new project called Big Country? Well, it wasn't Big Country, we didn't know what the name of the band was then. And just to be asked to be in a band with Stuart Adamson was just amazing. I was, I was 18 year old, Alan was even younger. And he says, um, bring your brother with you. And both of us were recruited to be in big country. I think I ought to ask Peter a question. What are, you, what are your ambitions for big country? Because you've, you've obviously been involved musically in the past. Um, well, I had played in local bands in the town, like Bruce, the other guitarist, too, played local bands. And like we never got much of a, a billing or anything with bands from Edinburgh and Glasgow. There was so much competition amongst local bands at this last year, which was happening because it was a great Scottish explosion in bands. And Stuart asked me to join the band about September this year, and like I've always expected and admired what Stuart's done, it just seemed the ideal thing for me to get some sort of way ahead in music, plus keep me enjoy playing with the musicians as long as I can enjoy playing and enjoying doing things with the band, then I'll be perfectly happy. How did you come across all the, the members in the band? How did you find them all? Well, as Peter was saying, I'd known them all because they all stayed fairly local, apart from Clyde, the drummer, who comes from London. And, uh, He'll batter me for that, actually. He comes from Camberley. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the most natural thing was uh, was to go and ask them because I'd, I'd always enjoyed the, the bands they'd been in in the past. It was just an amazing thing, you know. I mean, like, the Skids, I think, for me, were my, my favourite band. I, I, God knows how many times I saw them in the late 1970s. And just to be asked to be part of a band with Stuart Adamson was just the most amazing thing. And, you know, there was no hesitation at all in saying yes. I think Alan maybe said maybe for a, a couple of minutes, but uh, I'll let Alan tell his experience and account of all that. Uh, well, actually, it's, it's quite similar. I mean, I, uh, when you were talking about hanging on coattails, I was uh, 
when we started off playing with the subject, I was about 15 years old. So I think the great thing about punk and new age at the time was anyone can play and it didn't really matter what your age were. I think I think myself and Peter, because of our, we, we had been taught, not classically, but we I played the accordion, Peter played the piano. We, we kind of knew how to play and were quite confident about our musicianships. Uh, and I think that kind of helped us. But I think it's important to say, I think the subject was a three piece. Um, we had Peter on keyboards, uh, I was on bass and um, we had a drummer. So we didn't actually have a guitarist. Uh, so it was a quite a weird sounding thing. We did uh, Waltz New Age and it was very different from uh, the other kind of punky bands who were very guitar focused. Um, so that kind of set us apart. And I, I, I remember as well, that even I wasn't allowed to drink when we played gigs, obviously. Um, but Stuart did like us and he always he had, he had a more of a relationship with Peter than me. I was I was kind of too young, I think. Um, and yeah, and I remember that night. I still remember it actually because um, we used to go to a nightclub in Dunfermline, uh, and I think I was seventeen at the time. And I, I went off to a party, but I knew the only way I can get home to the village we lived in, I, I had to meet up with Peter at this nightclub um, called Chimes. And I came in, and it was kind of midnightish. And Peter said, "Stu Adams has just asked us to join his band." And I thought, "What?" Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you're kidding me. And he said, "No, nope, he wants us to join the band." I thought. God. And like Peter, Skids was one of my favourite bands. Um, we used to hear them rehearse at the school. Uh, the, the first rehearsal room was just down um, from one of our blocks in, in the school. So we used to hear all that. And I think for us, really, I think for the Skids, it, it just made us think, and I've heard Stuart talk about it, that any time, any place, there was an opportunity for bands. Um, and kind of Stuart and, and Richard set that alight for us, really. And as Peter said, there's loads of bands in Dunfermline, um, all doing good stuff. And it was just a great community. We were quite competitive with each other. Um, I mean, that's the, that was always a traditional thing uh, with bands in the same place. You know, we thought we, thought we were the best. Bruce thought he was the best uh, and all those kind of things. So it was, there was a, a really good rivalry. But um, no, it was good times. Uh, I just, uh, as I say, I, was, I always felt a little bit younger um, when I kicked off and then as I say, I think it was about 17 when that all that happened. So pretty young, but uh, yeah, what an experience. That, that's incredible context. Thank you very much for that. Spina, do you have anything you wanted to jump in on? Well, uh, plenty. I guess we're going to probably jump a bit back and forth because we have so many things and we'll remember things as we go along. And it's fine for if you two guys just come up with something just just uh, keep talking you know ideally you know we, we will shut up as long as you keep talking because you have all the memories and all the good stuff but i'll just say bruce was meant to be here today uh, sadly he couldn't but he said he was looking very much forward to uh, hearing the results uh, so since he isn't here uh, i just thought i would read a quote from him he he posts sometimes about the history of big country <laughs> and uh, he's always been kind of mentioning you and saying don't forget the wizards they were very crucial at one point. So I have a quote from, geez, this is how specific I am, the 10th of September 2017, <laughs> where he said, this was part of a bigger discussion, but he said, Pete and Alan Wizard were a big part of our story that seems to get swept under the carpet. They wrote the last third of the song, which became the B-side called The Crossing. My old band before BC used to play gigs with Pete and Alan when they were called the subjects. So that kind of reflects what you're saying. But uh, to him, those early days were important, and uh, he was kind of a bit in your boat, I suppose, that uh, he was also a bit younger, still also thrilled to be playing with Stuart, and you kind of just all got together, and I'm sure that was very special. Yeah, I think that was the, the thing that the three of us were just such huge fans, you know, and I, 
I remember Bruce. Bruce is one of the nicest guys in rock, as he would say. You know, he really is a a, a really nice guy. And I think as we as we progressed um, on in, in life, he uh, it, we got even closer. You know, and I think the, the contact. So I think it was the the thirtieth year of the Crossing album uh, being being published that they did a couple of sets in the studios where it was um, recorded. And he was really keen that myself and Peter um, came along. Um, I actually live in London, so it was really easy for me to do. I think more trouble for, for Peter getting there. But I mean, that was a great time. Um, I, I went for the, the two days. They got up and spoke and um, it was really good. And then Bruce played, uh, Big Country played the Shepherd's Bush Empire. And again, there's things that you never forget in life. Eh? When they started playing the crossing, when they got to our bit, he said, this is the part that Pete and Alan wrote. And it was just fantastic. And and my my stepdaughter, my wife was there, and and a few others, and they just thought, wow, incredible. So, now I think it's been really good. And and as the older we get, the more we um, obviously you start talking about the past more. But I definitely see a lot more of Bruce than, than I did because I I I think about a year after um, I left the country, I came down to London, so I was kind of way out the the Dunfermline scene, and I started my little life down here. I mean, I remember um, I remember meeting Bruce several times before we were all in big country and I think Alan sort of put it perfectly there was a, a sort of eager rivalry between Dunfermline bands you know like in like a, we had something different as Alan said in terms of what we had in terms of being an electronic waltz keyboard band which really stood apart and stood out to what to the rest of the things that were happening not just in Dunfermline but probably right across Scotland at that point but I remember turning up to watch uh, Bruce rehearse and I think he was banned at that point it wasn't quite the delinquents it was still the delinquents and I never heard such awful noise from Bruce and the rest of them and I was thinking gosh we've got nothing to worry about here at all when it comes to trying to get supremacy in the Dunfermline music scene but like um, Bruce kept on plugging away and playing and he became such an accomplished guitarist A lot of people, like in the time, I mean, everybody quite rightly like um, credits Stuart for being one of the top guitar players out of the new wave movement, which undoubtedly is. But Bruce brought so much to the, the band too, in, in terms of texture, in terms of just these little licks. I mean, Alan mentioned the crossing, and that's a that's a perfect example. Bruce came up with the the opening chords of the crossing, which became this massive three part anthem, which I still love listening to just now. But there was other songs that Alan and I brought, brought to I, I wrote a song called Round and Round that actually, I think we performed, didn't we, Alan, in the first three of the shows that we did with the band. And I think there's a recording of that somewhere where Big Country played that, which we'd be quite interested to dig out and play at some point. <laughs> Oh, 
Stuart was also very democratic when it came to some some of the ideas about contributions, whether that was arranging and all the songs that we were working on at that point became The Crossing. And we were always involved in a lot of the arranging of these songs and even contributing bits and pieces of the writing too. And it was great. And Stuart was always open to ideas. And it was just a great, dynamic, creative enterprise that we were all engaged in. And uh, even to this day, I, and, you know, like you listen back to The Crossing, you can hear little bits that, you know, you maybe contributed yourself and maybe brought to the table and attention for the first time. So it was a fantastic experience, you know, I mean, um, and being teenagers as Alan and I were, we were the youngest in the band, not by, I think this was a year older than me, but, you know, Stuart was always seen because he was just that few years older as the leader as he was, but it was, he was great to work with. It was just fantastic. Every day you turned up, you know, you, you're, you one day you'd be working on Lost Patrol, the other day Harvest Home, you know, the crossing Angle Park, and, you know, it was just fantastic working up and building up these songs. That's, that's yeah. so fantastic. It, just just um, talking more about how you began working on these songs and what that experience was like rehearsing even before your first show. But did, did Stuart, after he recruited you guys, do you recall him ever really kind of giving you, a, for lack of a better word, a manifesto of what he wanted his new band to be? Did he explain what he wanted it wanted to do? Or did you guys kind of work through that organically? I mean, I, I think it, I think it kind of grew. So Bruce, um, Bruce and Stuart and Stuart and some others, I think he used the, the drummer from the jam. I think Butler played on a couple of the, the demo tapes. Um, and I think Clive did as well. So a lot of the songs had been created um, that Bruce had, uh, sorry, Stuart had, had put together. happened was that Peter with the, with the keyboards really expanded the, the sound um, and uh, I think as I would describe myself I wasn't kind of the normal bass player because I didn't have a guitar guitarist in the band so uh, part of the, the reasons why I think it ended for me really was that um, uh, I played um, quite quite uh, lead bass you know kind of if you imagine kind of Derek Forbes at Simple Minds in the early days quite a dominant bass or um, the chap from magazine, I can't remember his name, is Adamson. So oh, yeah. A lot of, uh, yeah. And a lot of, you know, big bass players in those days um, that took quite a dominant. Uh, so that's where I started off. Um, and as Peter says, sure, the songs, but he, he was very liberal about saying, you know, what can you add to these? Um, and certainly um, Peter, I think, added a lot to the keyboard piece. It was still quite early days for technology. So I remember... It was a, a synth and an organ, but nonetheless that. And so I think when we were sitting after the rehearsals, we used to sit down and have a couple of beers and talk about it. And I think 
it was that concept of sort of an expanding the sound um just you know where the skids were quite a tight four piece it was really about what else can we do and i think the crossing was the, the best example of that was that he we we took some of the songs quite quite far away um to where they where they were previously and then perhaps when they got into the studio with Steve Lillywhite and others, he may have brought it back in a bit because I think we did take it to, to different directions. But I think that's always his manifesto was, is that he he wanted to to challenge some of the, the, the kind of four-minute song thing um, and, and see what we can do. And I think we were a big band with two guitarists. We had um, um, a keyboard player. We had a busy drummer at the time as well. So we were all adding things and... Um, you know, Stuart had, had written most of the bass lines for the songs, but again, he came and said, if you want to do different bass lines, then, then let's have a, have a listen. So that's where he was. And it was really good. I mean, as I kept saying, he was a kind of hero of ours. But um, at the same time, he, he really was impressed by us. That's, what, that's the sort of thing I always remember about him. He, he was really impressed about what we, we, we could um, deliver and, and bring to the band. How much of an advantage, Peter, is it to, to, to be involved with, some, with the reputation of Stuart Adamson? Well, I knew Stuart as a person, a friend, more than somebody being with the Skids, because I knew him when he was with the Skids. He always tried to help us out when we were a local band. And it's basically like that. I mean, there was an idea of the band starting off, and Stuart explained what this band would be all about. And I was really into the idea, so it's just a fresh start. I mean, it's, I think it's the same with Stuart. He feels it's a fresh start as well as everybody else. And I'm sure we're both equally nervous about playing on Thursday in our opening gig, as Stuart will be the same as everybody else in the band, I think. Is that right, Stuart? <laughs> but I think Stuart was always sort of looking to try and refine and define the sound of the country. I don't think he was ever settled on a particular approach and what it should sound like, other than it was to be a dual guitar rock-led rock sound is what he was after. And, you know, I mean, this remember the early 80s, like it was the, the, the stirring of stadium rock of big sound. And, you know, I mean, Stuart was a pioneer of all that. And but we were still coming to terms about how all that would settle down and what it would be. And, of course, at that point, too, it was post-punk heading towards New Romantic. And, again, the image thing was, was quite funny because Stuart was so into how we looked and how we should appear and come across. And I know they eventually settled on that check shirt sort of tartan vibe that they managed to create uh, during the early days of the crossing. But the, the first incarnation, and you'll see it in those photos that you mentioned, was um, headbands, eyeliner, you know, jumpers, and just general weirdness when it came to the clothes. And that, that was, uh, I think, one of the reasons why we went down so badly on the Alice Cooper tour, because I think they expected the crowd was going to be dressed like us. And they weren't, you know, it was still the heavy metal bikers that turned up and they had one look at these five very weird people on stage and decided immediately they weren't going to like us. And, you know, and in the end, we didn't like them very much either. So it, was, it wasn't going to be a, a perfect recipe for success and, you know, like a conclusion of a tour. Now, that's great. And and just real quick, um, uh, Stuart, Stuart Menzies here had a question for you and that I think works right in line with what you were just saying. So, um, Stuart, you want to you wanna ask? Ask him your question? Yeah, it's just like there's, so there's a few things I was just picking up. Um, going back, Alan, you mentioned about being at Queen Anne and um, mm -hmm. how iconic it was because I remember I was probably near you at some stage listening to the skids practicing down at Broomhead House because um, everybody used to try and find where the skids practiced. Um, right. the, the next thing following on to that was interesting to hear about um, the, the interview process as such because Richard's always quite vocal about um, how... Stuart and Bill went through the interview process for um, bringing people in. Um, but clearly you've answered that question. So there was no such interview process or anything, um, just an approach. Um, mm. 
so the, the, the couple of areas I was want to talk about, um, the, the, the first one was um, the first time you got together in a practice room. So you're, you're invited together. Who was there? Where, where in Dunfermline was that? And uh, how did that go? What, what, were there songs created already? How, how did that actually go? How did you feel about that? Because you're, you're, you're in a room with, um, you know, one of your idols. Um, and, how was that? So we rehearsed down at the, the music shop down the bottom Sound of the town. Yeah. They had a little rehearsal room. That's where we first started off. So um, I think from memory, Stuart gave us a few of the tapes. So we kind of set um, uh, to try and learn some of the songs. And I say most of it was written, um, but we we could expand it and whatever. So a lot of the, a lot of the songs we knew. Um, God, you know. Doing that first rehearsal, I probably didn't sleep that night. You know, it was it was that much. It was we still were kind of buzzing the fact that we'd asked and I was at college at the time, and so was Peter. So we just had to go to our parents and say, right, we're leaving college. This this is it. We've now got this musical career. So um, I think maybe that might have taken a week or so to to get through that process, and then we were straight in rehearsing every day. Um, and it was just going through the songs. Um, and as I say, we were, we were okay musicians, um, so we picked things up really quick. And I think Bruce knew a lot of the songs anyway. He'd been um, there before us. So I kind of felt it was okay, but it was rehearsing every day. We used to rehearse every day. We started off at sound control, and then um, I, th- I can't remember why we had to move. So we ended up in this uh, dilapidated church that was going to be knocked down. Um, again, I can't remember this, the street, but it was bloody freezing. I just remember we a beautiful room. Um, so we rehearsed there um, for, for a good few weeks and then we managed to get the Glen Pavilion. Um, so we rehearsed down there during the day as well. And that was much better because we had a stage and everything. Um, so, yeah, we just went straight into it. But as I say, we, we rehearsed every day. And um, I remember it was, I don't know if Peter remembers it, Clive and, and, and Bruce had a really good relationship. Clive stayed with Bruce when, when he lived um, in Scotland uh, for the duration. <laughs> And, and they would go home and just work on a full track and work on um, songs and work and practice. And so they just, they just kept going, you know. <laughs> um, and then they, they used to come back with sound recordings of Hoovers and other things as part of the songs. Um, but uh, it was just good times. And as I say, it was, we're, you had to get on with it. We, we started early um, and worked all day. And then, as I say, we, we finished off, but it was kind of five days a week. I mean, we put in an awful lot of effort. Alan's absolutely right. You know, we, we were very disciplined about the rehearsals. And, um, you know, I mean, it, was, it was practically every day for God knows how many months that we did this. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't a, a chore by any means. We loved doing it. It was great fun. I think the first song we actually rehearsed, and my memory, and maybe it's different for Alan, was Lost Patrol. We turned up to Sound Control and Sound Control was an iconic music shop in Dunfermline, you know, and I think it's still in operation across Scotland and uh, I mean, we used to hang out down there. It was either Sound Control or, or Sandy Muir's record store. When that, of course, no bad records was Sandy Muir's, which had the, the skids recording. So we'd, we'd be up, you'd end, start off at Sandy Muir's record store and then venture down to Sound Control and just see what new instruments were in, whatever. And it was run by a guy, a couple of guys called Pat and Kip, who own sound control at that point and I think they, they were members they'd be members of Sad Cafe and became the sound and lights uh, for the skids and they, they were very close friends with Stuart and they very generously allowed us to rehearse down there for the, the first few weeks till we found our feet you know just to see if things were working out 
But yeah, we had a, a variety of different places. The, the church island refers to um, being demolished. They allowed us first shot at it. I remember going to the walls with pick pick shovels and hammers and things. And I think we did a reasonable job of demolishing it on our own island, didn't we? You know, like the, the five of us just set to the place. <laughs> like that. Then we got the Glen Pavilion, which was which was brilliant because we had um, uh, the, uh, the caretaker Jeannie, as she was called, who used to serve up the tea every single day for us. She'd come through with a, a tray like this, you know, like with the tea already, and we'd all pour it out. And she was great, and it was just this this sort of we were sort of looked after by mm-hmm. all these people that were working with us. And it was more to do with just how well considered Stuart was across the town. I think Stuart had worked for the council for um, a few months, um, even prior to his time with the skids. So they were, the council were actually quite helpful in allowing us to find places to rehearse. And you know that's how we got to the church and then into to the Glen Pavilion. But it was just, it was just great. We we, we, we always used to greet Jeannie with Jeannie pit the tea on. And I think we even had a musical version of it, Alan, didn't we? That um, I think Bruce excelled himself in when it came to using some of the auto tunes and stuff that, you know, like when Jeannie would do the long march from the kitchen at the back of the Glen Pavilion to the stage, you know, she'd get a, a rousing rendition of Jeannie Pit the Tea on. <laughs> Shut Stuart, the, the band Skids obviously enjoy great success, but how quickly do you expect a big country to, to catch on and perhaps appear on top of the pops? Uh, it's hard to say, that sort of thing lies in other people's hands, really, next week. <laughs> you, you really have, though, got one fairly big break, which most bands, of course, would be very, very envious of, and that is you're going on tour, of course, with Alice Cooper, yeah, that's right. which is guaranteed, I think, to play to very large audiences. Did It's not a question, you're, you're quite used to large audiences, Stuart, but what about Peter? How do you fancy the prospect of standing up in front well, of several thousand people, one hopes? I'll be happy if he sneaks away from me, that's all. We're still doing the snake, Oh, yes. It gets work permit first, though. <laughs> 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 but as I say, this, we're doing Dothelman on the Thursday, and the Tuesday in Brighton Conference Centre, so it's, it's, go- it's going to be quite a different audience. Orientation, you're just going to have to get used to it, and just, just as long as we feel tight as a band, so as long as we we could put a, convince people that we're, they're tight and what we're doing is good, like because we've got to convince them for like people who have never heard big country, they're going to see Alice Cooper. So it means we only have to work hard, and we're looking forward to the the task. One thing we need to get a little deeper into than we already covered is the Alice Cooper thing. That is kind of a huge thing in the early part of really the, the time you were there. That's the thing that people still talk about. The time that Big Country were quote unquote asked to leave or told to leave or <laughs> depending. But to, just to set really the stage of that before we get into it, because Alice Cooper was at the time on the tail end of touring an album called Special Forces. This was the time when Alice started to blend new wave and pop rock music into his hard rock style, kind of trying to keep up with the changing musical trends. So trying to stay current. So it's probably not um, strange for him to look for a band that kind of fit in with that. And 
whether a big country worked or didn't work is, is something we touched on there. But uh, Bruce also has mentioned that uh, another band that they talked about hiring was Depeche Mode, and it came down to you, and actually they went for a big country. So you can imagine how that might have gone with the, the biker gags. Uh, but uh, really, that's kind of the musical thing that Alice was into then. It, it, it was kind of twilight years for him. And he says this is his blackout phase. Like he recorded three albums, I think, that he don't remember writing them, recording them, or even touring them. And that was the Special Forces, Zipper, Catch a Skin, and Dada albums. So that's kind of where you fit in at the time. You were warming up for that version of Alice Cooper, which was kind of weird. So just to ask you first, did you meet Alice at that time? Did you... <laughs> interact with the band or was that very much a separate thing well, I, I don't think you actually did it's been like um i remember we all went to london and we got this bed and breakfast i think there was the five of us in one room you know and yeah. i think stuart was lucky enough that he managed to get a single bed to himself because you know like uh given he had been in bands before but the rest of us were just all wherever we could find any place to lay our heads basically so we were based in london this B&B &B, and then um, the first gig was in Brighton and the, the, the centre down at Brighton and so we, we drove down to that and we, Alan and I had never done anything like this before you know and neither had Bruce Clive had done a little bit because he'd been with Spiz Energy and I think he'd been like done a few gigs with the mem with the members and obviously Stuart did it all with the skids but for Alan and I this was and Bruce this was turning up to an arena and you know, like you, well, what the hell is all this? And there are all these management people who, you know, like this is at the height of, you know, record company decadence and music was de decadence. And you were in introduced very quickly to these lists of characters who were bigger than life. I mean, I've, I've been in the music industry, as you know, for, for, for 20 years after that, but like this was a, a different period entirely that, uh, it was it was all going on, and um, so we, we we just didn't know what to make of it all. And no, we didn't didn't meet Alice Cooper. He was kept uh, well well away from us. And the only thing we'd heard about Alice Cooper at all, I think he came at the uh, Birmingham gig. Or was it Manchester? What was the second gig? Alan? Was it Birmingham? Birmingham or Manchester? He, he, he popped oh, out for five minutes, and apparently he asked, "Who the hell is that?" <laughs> he explained it was a big country. He says, "I want them off the tour by tomorrow," and I think that was the total contribution from Alice Cooper to um, the whole big country experience with him. Mm, I mean, I we just weren't ready. We should never have done it. Uh, it was as simple as that. I think. Um, we, we played the Glen Pavilion a couple of weeks before, so we played in front of our home crowd and it was all fantastic. It was really good and, you know, we, we were a really tight band. Um, as I say, we, 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 we got, we, we weren't kind of fearful of playing in front of a big crowd. I never really was, I mean, you're getting nervous, but even playing in front of that, that amount, I just kind of felt, yeah, I can do this, you know. So it was never the worries about the band and what we sounded like. It was just basically... We were the wrong band, and perhaps we should have started maybe doing a, um, slightly smaller venues and getting getting used to that. Um, so I think that was the start of the the downfall for us. Really, it was um, highlighted that we weren't ready to go into the big stage, and we weren't. You know, I I turned up I turned up with a hundred watt H and H amp. You know, um, that was all I had, and, and one bass guitar. Um, when you look at so the Alice Cooper bass guitarist, he had a, a whole stack of Marshalls, you know. So this one tiny amp and one one bass, it just kind of. And I think I think my lead didn't work either, so we had to borrow a lead from um, the Alice Cooper guys. Uh, so it was just things like that. We we just kind of rushed into it. Um, 
the band, I do remember the band, actually. They were quite friendly. We, Alice Cooper did soundcheck, and I thought that was really interesting because, again, in those days with the technology, you thought that perhaps you should. And I think I went to see him um, a couple of weeks ago, actually, in the O2. Um, not necessarily because Alice Cooper, Cult's one of my favourite bands, so Cult were supporting, so that's why we went down. And uh, to be fair to the guy, he was pretty good. Um, but it just brought back all those memories, you know, uh, of the, the the guitar playing and whatever. But uh, yeah, I think um, I, I think we were it was too it was too soon. Um, and I think interestingly, my I found out I met my wife fourteen years after that gig, and apparently she was there. Um, and she remet she can, continually reminds me how bad we were. Uh, her and her boyfriend remembers the support band. Didn't know who it was, big country. And all she remembers is we were crap. Um, so it's quite funny, 14 years later, meet this woman and say, oh, yeah, I played in big country uh, down in Brighton because she's from Brighton. She said, oh, I remember that. So kind of it's amazing how things come around. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't good. And then we did Birmingham. And I think that was it. We, we you know, I got so close to playing Hammersmith Odeon. I can't believe that. And we, we just we just didn't get there. Oh, that uh, was the next one. That was the next one. Mine, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, one of the things that I learned from that experience is when I was 17 years with Runrig and like we had uh, quite a lot of success, you know, like uh, particularly in the early 1990s, was that uh, you were all I was always nice to the support band just because like I found that whole experience to be so negative. I know Alan said stuff about the, the rest of the guys in the band, I never sort of got that from them, but certainly from their management and the people that were around them. Like, all, all we got, all I got was just hostility. And so, like, uh, one of the things that I took away from that was if I ever did anything else in music, I was always going to be nice to the support band. And I'd like to think that all the bands that ever played with Run Rig were treated positively by all the guys around us in the band because I just, I just found that whole thing really awful. I uh, didn't enjoy any time in the, those two dates with the with Alice Cooper. I was quite excited by Callan about playing it, playing and I was looking forward to it. But I, I knew the minute we walked on stage, it was not going to be good. They, they, I mean, like, they looked at us like just, just like the sense of who on earth are you? And, you know, like, and they just did not want to. They, never, they didn't give us a ch- chance, basically. You know, from the first few notes that we played, they were determined that they were going to hate us. And um, that was the case. And, you know, like, we, we tried really hard to, to win them over. But there was nothing that we could ever have done um, as a band that sounding like we did and looking like we did that was ever going to appeal to Alice Cooper's crowd in 1981 or whatever, whenever that was I think it was 1981 but it just, just was an ill-matched uh, yeah and had we got the chance to do a few more gigs you know possibly but it still wouldn't have worked I don't think it just, mm-hmm. just wasn't right Do you remember how that message trickled down to you that you wouldn't be going on on a tour? No, it's just quite brutal. It's over, guys. Um, he doesn't want you. So that was it. We just um, headed back to Scotland. Um, that's kind of the music business. Yeah. Uh, it was as simple as that. Um, it was just, Grant, you're off the tour. I think that was basically it, wasn't it? <laughs> and we were sitting in Birmingham and we had to get by out to London. The next very next day, we were, we were back, back to Scotland, you know, yeah. and harmoniously. Malcolm mentioned just now that uh, your debut concert's in Dunfermline. Now, why did you choose that? I know it's your, is it your hometown? Or it's where <coughs> yeah, that's right. But why did you choose that as opposed to a bigger uh, venue where you could have got more Well, we, more we wanted the, the first concert to be quite low-key and just basically as a, 
a warm-up type gig before we actually go out and play across the country. I wanted to jump back a little bit. As Fine said at the beginning, you know, we'll probably go back and forth a bit. Um, but since the, your period in, as big country was not that long, so we're not jumping, you know, years and years here, but I wanted to take you back to the first show that you did at the, at the Glen Pavilion, um, which I have a recording of. I think Clive actually shared it years ago on his Facebook page. And I, I thought, you know, this might be something I want to keep. So I downloaded it. It didn't last up very long, but I think he said it was recorded uh, with a, a boom box that was someone put on the side of the stage. And just listening to that again, as I prepared, you know, to speak with you guys, um, just was struck by, yeah, you sounded, you know, young and, and fresh and raw, but it was, it was very powerful. I mean, just the energy that you guys had um, with those songs and, I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts were of that gig. How, how did it feel to actually perform that gig? What kind of reaction did you get at the time? I'm assuming it had to be, you know, fairly different from the Alice Cooper crowd, but maybe that's an assumption. I don't know, but it, just whatever thoughts you have about that first gig, I would love to hear. Go on, Alan. Um, well, again, I, the thing is funny what you remember from the gig. So, um, I mean, again, just very much looking forward to it. I, I, I love playing um, and I know that people suffer from nerves and whatever, but I was just about getting on there and enjoying it, really. And it was absolutely great. It was packed. Um, it was, you know, it was a hometown. So we we went down very well. Um, uh, we played very well. Um, and it's funny because I, I remember my cousin was in the front row. Um, my mum and dad were there. And it was really good that our dad got to see us uh, play. He died soon after. So I think it was just stuff like that. It was that's my memories of it. It was it was a great night. Um, it's one of those things as ever. It passes too quickly. You know, you're on and you're off kind of thing. Um, and it's funny. I, I just just remember people that um, there was a whole buzz about the town about big country. Um, you got three haircuts. You know, it was fantastic and things like that. But um, everyone was just really up for this and wanted it to be a huge success to kind of follow on where the the skids got to. Um, so it was kind of almost like a party atmosphere, I would describe it as. Um, good fun. And uh, yeah, it was great. Really good. I can't remember if anyone supported us, Pierre. I don't think there was a support band. I think we, we just did um, one set. <laughs>
because remember, we, we, the other thing about it, because we, we were rehearsing at that point in the Glen Pavilion, this is where the gig was, we redecked it with all these flags that Stuart had managed to find at the back of the stage. And so there was all these weird flags and stuff, but actually added to the atmosphere of the whole thing. And, um, you know, I mean, just, just as we were never going to succeed with Alice, Alice Cooper, we were never, ever going to fail in Dunfermline with a new, the new band funded by Stuart Adamson. And there was a real buzz created and generated in advance of us playing that first gig. There was a real excitement about what would sound like. There's so few people that actually heard us. And the only, I think, well, I know John's here. He was probably one of the few people who'd actually heard us in rehearsals because we actually kept quite closed because we wanted to, like, get ready, prepare, and then just unleash you know, like the, the band that becomes. So there was very few people actually had heard us. A, a few record company people had came up and obviously uh, Ian Grant had a few of his people along occasionally just to chat through stuff and, you know, listen to how things were developing and progressing. But, you know, like when we got on that stage for that first ever gig, nobody knew what to expect at all. Nobody had heard many the, the demo tapes that Stuart had prepared. Very few people had actually seen or, or heard us rehearse. And it was great. The one thing I remember about the night, and it was terrifying for me, was Stuart broke a, uh, a string on his guitar, and we had no road crew or anything. There was there was there was a Dodd, who was the one guy that we had who did everything for us, but um, he, he couldn't <laughs> he couldn't reach in a guitar, and so Stuart said, "Say something to the crowd," and I thought, "What?" He said, "Say I'm going to have to change this guitar string." So here was me, you know, like um, I mean, I'm a pretty. Yeah, adept at public speaking now as a politician but in those days like somebody saying to you say something <laughs> and of course I just warbled the nonsense and the thing is that it seemed like an eternity before Stuart was able to get that string on his guitar and return you know to take over much more adequately than I could ever do at that point but that's the one thing I remember about that evening is um, probably my very first introduction to public speaking at a big country gig you know like um, back in, in the early 1980s that explains so much because I heard that very moment last night when I was listening to the show and there was this long pause and Stuart was saying some stuff in the background and I thought, I wonder what happened there. And he said like technical difficulties or something. And that's, that's exactly what it was. That's amazing. It uh, might be worth mentioning at this point. We we open for questions on the podcast Facebook group, and uh, I don't have a question, but I have a comment from someone who actually was there that night and saw that show. That is Callum McPherson, and uh, he said, "I was at the Glen Pavilion gig and thought they were brilliant, unpolished possibly, but they definitely played some songs that went on to being on the crossing." So they both should have some input, whether credited or not. And the question, I guess, he's asking there at the end, I'd like to know how much, but we kind of talked uh, about that already. But uh, I thought that was cool. I didn't expect to hear from someone who actually was at that gig. Usually you have some gigs that if, every, if everybody who says they were there actually were there, um, they would fill the building and the street outside and, and the town possibly. But uh, it, it seems legit. Yeah. I think everybody yeah. that film was there that night. You know, like um, that's that's always the case. Uh, some of the some of these iconic first shows. Mm. Uh, well, hey, I want to be respectful of your time, and I know you, you Peter, especially have said you you need to stop around six. So, 
Um, wanted to jump to a couple of the more major, final more major questions, I guess, because we could we could regale you with minutia all day long. <laughs> but um, th this is, I guess, the, the the sad part of the story. But if just curious about it from a fan standpoint, what was well, I, maybe the best place to, to start with this would just be to, and you guys probably have seen these quotes before, I'm sure, but I, I know Stuart, one of his quotes about that first incarnation of the band was he said, with the first big country, it was certainly bigger, but it was all over the place. Everybody played 19 to the dozen. There was no solid basis for anything. We stuck with it for some time because it was actually quite exciting playing in it, uh, playing with it. And then Ian Grant has a comment where he says, it was clear by this point that something wasn't working with the first lineup. I told Stuart he had two choices, either tour the highlands and islands of Scotland for a year <laughs> and iron out the problems or make some changes. He thought about it over the weekend and decided that he had to put the music first. At that point, I decided it might be a good idea to have Tony and Mark um, come in. So I'm just curious what that experience was like for you. I mean, obviously, just having played these shows and starting out with these great expectations, how did they how did they let you know that they were going to move on in a different direction? And is it true that they they wanted to keep Peter and you guys said, hey, if my brother's gone, I'm going to. <laughs> I'll let Peter start that one first. <laughs> when it was it was actually we knew something was up and we we the, obviously the fallout from the Alice Cooper debacle um, had long-term consequences and we knew that something was afoot and something wasn't right and you know we, we noticed the, the change in mood and temperament of Ian Grant when it came to discussing the future of the band so like I, I think we all picked up that something was going on and obviously the, the thing that was going on was um, was uh, Tony and and Mark quite rightly you know I mean, the, I mean it's hard to imagine big country's success without Tony and Mark and they got that right totally so um like I think, I think for for us it would have been, you know, like it was the way Stuart describes it, it's pretty pretty accurate. It was it was big and big and messy, exciting and dynamic, and you know it could have, I believe, it probably could have became something, something maybe slightly different from the big country that emerged, you know, like with a more slimmed down version of it. You know, like I I don't know what we could have gone on to be whether we could have been as successful, more successful or not successful at all. My suspicion is I think we could have gone on to have been an exceptional band if we had been given the right sort of opportunities, grooming and space to develop within our own context. I think we could really have gone on to something special. But to answer your direct question, I'll never forget the night that we found out that we were our services were no longer required. I still don't know whether I was sacked, sacked or not. I think I was gently encouraged to think about possibly staying with the staying with the band. But Stuart turned up in his motorbike to our house in Kingseat and just sat there and broke the news that Alan was no longer in the band and now there was Clive who was wanting to take the band in a different direction. He didn't obviously didn't mention Tony or Mark at that point. And you know, like he, it was you could tell it was this pain them greatly because we'd all become great mates, you know, like and we'd done all this remarkable stuff together. It was a huge experience for all of us. And um, but you know, and Stuart found it really difficult to 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 break break that to us. But you know, I mean you're asking me, was it the right decision? Yeah, probably, you know, I mean, like, um, he ended up with a, a fantastic band that went on to sell 
millions of records, you know, got Grammys in the States and had number one albums, you know, I mean, you can't say that was a bad decision, you know, in terms of being, being, being doing it and maybe it was required, but I still don't know to this day whether I was sacked or not, but um, I left in solidarity with my brother. <laughs> so um, that, uh, that, that, was, that was that, but, you know, like and Alan will answer for himself about what it was like for him, but for me, the thing that result, the, the result of all of this was that I was effectively headhunted by Runrig because they were they wanted to, they wanted the Runrig at that point to sound much more like big country than just an album called the Heartland, but still had I wouldn't say just one foot in the folk camp, but most decidedly two feet in the folk camp, and they wanted to break out into be much more of a rock sound. So they'd heard about this keyboard player that used to be in um, big country and they effectively came looking for me and asked me if I wanted to join. I had no hesitation about joining. And so like I got the, the gig with with uh, Runrig on the back of being in big country. And I would never have got that had I not been in big country. So, you know, like whatever happened, it worked out perfectly for me. I got into politics at the back of being in Runrig. So my whole life has worked out, you know, like perfectly. And I couldn't have, I couldn't have scripted it better, you know, but, you know, like it all started, you know, with, Big country. The Stuart Adamson said to me that day, "How do you feel about joining in this band and put together Dunfermline?" And my life was changed at that moment, and everything that I've gone on to, to do subsequently was based on me knowing Stuart Adamson and being a friend of Stuart Adamson's. Yeah, I suppose if I start at the finish where I am now, I mean, I think my life has been very much framed around big country. It's so weird. So I've got jobs. I've had jobs because. The person who interviewed me loved Big Country. It's such a weird thing. And it's really, you know, it's... If you asked me 30 years ago, um, I was, you know, very angry and bitter about it. it was, that was the worst night of my life, um, hearing that from Stuart. Uh, and you can imagine a, a young man being told that and thinking you had this one one chance to play with your, your kind of legend uh, from your town. So it was really hard. Uh, and I think I, I, remember, I remember the night very well as well because... We knew something was up um, and uh, Stuart came up to the house and said, Alan, you're out and Clive, you're out. Um, and we kind of knew it was coming. Um, after the um, Alice Cooper tour, we, we, we came back and started rehearsing again. And, uh, you know, when I reflect back now, I think he made the right decision. Myself and Clive were mad. Um, um, rhythm section. We were just not um, ready uh, to play in a band like that. As I, as I said, and I think it was quite important about the subject piece, I was playing bass with a space where there wasn't a guitarist. Uh, and I remember I was using jazz strings on my bass so I could play fast. Um, I wasn't using the old big um, round wire bass um, sound and I was going through a phaser and different things. So I still, still wanted to try and bring that into big country um, and it was wrong. Uh, and Clive was a very, very busy drummer. Um, he was kind of one of the first drums, drummers who used the, the high toms and whatever. Uh, and again, that was part of the Spiz Energy piece that he was, if you ever watch, uh, I'd, whoever's listening, I'd, I'd advise you to watch um, Spiz Energy at one of the Leeds festivals. And you watch Clive and you're mesmerised by him. But you can't play like that in a band like Big Country. Um, and I think that was the problem, that me and Clive were just too noisy and too fast and too um, whatever. So... Although at the time I thought it was totally wrong, um, I, I look back now and, and you, when you hear Tony play uh, and the way that him and Mark kind of hold it uh, and hold that deep bass sound, because um, when I went along to the, the, the 30th anniversary, I, I sat near Tony 
um, when he was playing, and he just thumps it out, and it's just a great sound. And it's exactly what I think they needed. Um, I think what had happened was I, I kind of realised that after Alice Cooper, um, and we, we knew there was something wrong. So uh, just a sort of interest aside, really, we, we came back, and myself and Clive started working on it um, and really trying to put their bass drum and bass together, etc. And part of that was Chance, um, which came out. Um, Bruce, the, the idea for Chance, and he started playing it. And I don't know if you remember, Peter, we all just sat there thinking, this is an amazing song. Uh, and, and Stuart wasn't coming down to rehearsals as much. Um, so we started working on that. And it's there's a lot of similarities to the, the, to the, the, the actual version in the end, but you'll hear the kind of bass drum and the bass working really in sync. And that's what we mean, Clive, to learn. Um, and we hadn't been doing that for the whole period that we had done the, 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 the previous rehearsals and the gigs. So I had to, I would have had to relearn my bass playing um, and um, that would have taken me a few months. You can't just change it overnight, no matter how um, solid you think your bass playing is. So I would have to change my bass playing, Clive would have to change his bass, uh, drum playing. And as I say, that would have taken us a tour around the Highlands. <laughs> and so I get it. Uh, Mark is an amazing drummer and Tony, uh, a fantastic bass player. So... You know, when I look back now, I, I think I would have done it uh, and I would have got those guys in. Um, and to be honest, I uh, what I did next, I, I, I never really wanted to be a bass player. I wanted to be a guitarist. So I came down to London. Um, I kind of promised my mother that I would study and do a degree. And soon after that, I put a band together, but I was a guitarist. Um, and I wanted to play in a goth rock band. And that's what I did. And wrote songs that sadly I liked, but no one else really liked. And uh, we, we did the circuit for playing every shithole in London, did some tours around England, got publishing deals, did an album, did a single, but it never really materialised. But however, I had a great time uh, and really enjoyed it. And on the back of Big Country, we got a bit further than a, a lot of uh, other bands did at the time because we, you know, people did recognise me because Clive was in the band as well. So we continued with our busyness. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's, I always think it's helped me in my life. Um, it, it's, I, I went to London to try and get away from it, but you can't, you can never get away from it. Even when I mention it now to someone, they get so, wow, you're in big country. And as I say, as I went, I go to weddings and my mate will say to the wedding band, that guy used to play in a band, big country, and they'll get you up and they'll say, what bass will you use? How do you do it? It's still like that, you know, it's incredible. So even um, some of the young kids, because it's played on, um, some of the radio stations here know it. So yeah, uh, same as Peter. It's it, I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to play in big country. It never happened, but it's not kind of ruined my life. It's kind of added to my life. So that's how I look at it. Um, but as I say, that was the worst night of my life uh, when that happened. Um, but yeah, there we are. I'll let you jump in here on the next one. I just wanted to give Stuart a chance to ask this question that's been plaguing him for his entire adult life. And he has you guys on here who can possibly satisfy this question he's had for years. So I had to let him let him ask it. Thanks, Tom. Um, I'll cast my mind back to being, a, I was 11 years old or thereabouts. And I used to go up to the centre of the town and listen to all the bands practicing because um, I remember all the different halls around the area, the centre of the town, and hear who's practising. I remember sitting one night on Chapel Street, opposite the Stance restaurant, and Pete Smith's, remember Pete Smith's wee shop next door, and hearing my band practice, 
Um, and, and it wasn't until, I, I loved the sound, and it wasn't until the crossing came out, I realised I'd been listening to Harvest Home or some rendition of Harvest Home. I, I'm still convinced to this day that it was definitely a big country I was listening to, but I never knew what lineup it was. Was that the church hall you were in? That's or right. That, That's it was. Church. Yeah. Ah, so it was the original lineup I was listening to then. Well, I sat out there last that, that <laughs> night as an 11 year old. Um, yeah. And I still remember to this day, oh, and I'm well in my 50s now, so there you go, what an impact. <laughs> you've, made, awesome. you've made my day. <laughs> that was one of my favourite songs, Harvest Song. I loved that song. I thought it was really, I love playing it. And uh, yeah, it was kind of a kind of raw song. It's great. Just, just, I think it's, it's also worth noting too that um, one of the big things for Stuart in the early days was uh, vocals and backing vocals. And like um, Fred Allen and I, managed to just about provide very scratchy vocals for a post-punk waltz band. We were never what you would call uh, prime vocalists when it came in. And one of the things that we spent hours doing, and Stuart was determined that we got this right, was being drilled to do the harmony and backing vocals. And for some reason, I, I ended up doing most of them. And I can't sing at all. You know, like the, the runway guys never let me anywhere near a microphone after like hearing me attempting to do a backing vocal. But for some reason, I was sort of selected and picked out a shirt to do most of the, the backing vocals and Harvest Home was the most. And I could, every time I hear it, you know, I can almost sing perfectly the <laughs> harmony vocals and, and I'm crap at harmonies. But that, that was the thing that neither of us had. And, you know, Bruce Blesson, He's got lots and lots of musical talents, but vocals isn't one of them. So, you know, like none of, none of us had it. And of course, what Tony and Mark brought was the harmonies that Stuart were looking for, you know. And if you listen to the way that Tony's voice sits seamlessly in the mix with Stuart and, you know, the, I mean, I always think of them as almost like a double vocal in so many of the tracks that they do anyway, but none of us could do that. And regardless of how many hours we applied ourselves, Alan, there was, there was Stuart was never going to be vocalists out of us. And I think the thing that's what shocked me was, um, you know, Stuart was the guitarist and backing vocalist in the kids, and hearing them sing when we heard the tapes in rehearsal, what a voice he had. He was an amazing singer. He, he just had a, a wonderful, wonderful warm voice that went with these songs. And again, I, I suppose that was quite, when I'm thinking back now, that was quite a shock to me that he was the, uh, the guitarist um, that uh, then became the singer. Uh, and he was just an amazing singer. Uh, and again, he can do backing vocals to himself uh, quite easily. But uh, yeah, it was quite interesting that that kind of thought, wow, we can do it all. That's great. Uh, since we're talking about the early days of rehearsal, this ties in well with my question I have next, which is uh, more about the creative side of starting to play together, putting songs together. And it's uh, well known at this point that you are the, the brains behind that epic end section of The Crossing. So I was just wondering, are, what other parts would you stake your claim on? Are, are there things that the, the, the Wizard brothers should plant their flag on and say, this part was ours on other type of songs? That's kind of interesting for us to hear. What, what other bits exist with your trademark on it? I don't, I don't get sued by John, okay? That's the main thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but... Um, I think for me, I think we, we had a big part in chance. I kind of feel quite proud of what we, we added to that and the, just the way that, that it played out. There's a, there's, a, there's a guitar line that when I speak to Bruce about that, he says, 
your brother played that on the, the synth and I've got to play it on the bloody guitar. It's so difficult. I can't remember the song. So again, there's a lot of the keyboard lines that, um, that Peter played that kind of landed in other songs. Um, and then there's a little jingly bit in Fields of Fire, if I remember. So we didn't, we didn't participate in that one. But um, again, you, you, it's so funny in, in, that you, I can hear Peter on that almost um, with some of the, the, the guitar jingly bits with the synth. Um, so, yeah, it's just those little things. I think that what was great about, because I don't think he'll say it, was, was Peter, that he came up with some fantastic lines to complement the guitar. Um, so if you can imagine you had the, the Ebo guitar, um, but if you had a synth on, synth on top of that, it just really added to the to the the, the width of the the sound. And uh, and Peter, in the in the subject, Peter was the main songwriter. Um, I I played along. Um, uh, so I think yeah, creative wise, that that there was a lot of little little bits that um, that they I think Stuart listened to and others and thought yeah, we can add that. And I certainly think there was an influence there. Uh, I don't want to give us too much credit, please. I, I'm not saying that we. We made the big the, the crossing and whatever, but there was little bits, um, and certainly I, I can hear it. I don't know what you think, Peter. Yeah, def- definitely, I mean, like, like I think put cards on the table. The crossing of Stuart's album. I mean, there's 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 no doubt about that. I mean, the, the songs were conceived out his creativity and imagination. You know, and what an imagination to come up with some of these themes in in that music. I mean, it, it was it was just amazing. Like just listening to some of that, even. Like as, as a colleague of his in the band, but there are, there are little bits, and there's there is a I won't mention the particular bit in Fields Fire, but you know, like uh, that I, I do I distinctly remember contributing. I can't remember in which song, and there's other little bits, things. There's a couple of things in Poroman too, you know, like the way that uh, I used to harmonize Stuart's guitar and stuff, which became a big feature of the the song, you know, and. And then there's obviously the the, the crossing. But I was so pleased that we just, and I think for for Alan and I. You know, like the fact that, you know, the, the, the crossing got out and something that we crafted back in the late 1970s as, as Skids fans ended up in a big country album is just great. And I think that's, I listened back to that with, with you know, and I have, I've had a long musical career, but I listened back to that with great pride and just thinking that's just fantastic. We made it. there that evening in Shepherds Bush Empire who, who stopped the song and thanked us and credited us with that, that part of it which was 
which was just just really quite special, you know. And it, it was it was fantastic. Did that. I mean, um, Alan's right about Chance. Ch- Chance was it came out of a, a riff from Bruce, and we all worked worked up. It changed quite dramatically when Stuart got involved, and he brought that. But to me, I think his most powerful lyric to Chance, you know, and it changed the nature of it all. It was a, a bit of a happy-go-lucky song. And then, you know, like when I heard it on the album, I thought, goodness sake, what on earth does he manage to do with this melody? And it was just wonderful. And there was another song um, called Balcony, which end, I think ended up in the rarities. We, we were all really excited about that. And this was another song that came from the five of us. I think, again, it was a, a Bruce Riff that started the whole thing off. And, you know, I got involved in... Um, creating some of the music around about that. And then that took a life. Was one, I, I thought that was going to be one of the, the top songs. I was quite surprised when I got the crossing. I was looking for Balcony, you know, like, where is it? And it wasn't there. And, and then I heard that subsequently, and it, it did sound great. And then there was the songs that start, were starting to, to emerge. Fields of Fire wasn't one of them. Fields of Fire didn't come until Alan and I were out of the band, but there was Flag and Nation. There was Ring Out Bells which I thought was a great song. I really thought that was going to go somewhere. We're starting to create things, you know, like organically in the band, obviously all from Stuart, you know, who would always be the spark when it came to, you know, like getting the songs together. But there was, it was quite an interesting little period at the end of that, but at that point it was more or less over, you know, that was post Alice Cooper and you know, like um, things were moving on apace without the involvement of Alan and I. <laughs> but no, it was great. It's was, it was just been it's, it's fantastic listening back to big country records. I bought a vinyl version of Steel Town. I, I always found it difficult to get to, to Steel Town. I love the sea. I think it's a great album. But I, I, got, um, I bought a vinyl version of Steel Town. And what an album that is! You know, you can see where Stuart took things. You know, in terms of his songwriting and where this went. And I'll just say one last thing. You know, like, I know I'm going to have to go, but I, I remember the day that um, Stuart died. I mean, I was a new, I was a, a newly elected member of Parliament, and I took a flight home from from London, and um, I looked at my phone. And I had someone like twenty messages. I thought, what? It's just I thought I did something wrong. You know, as, a, as an MP, you, you're always worried that you've caught up in some scandal or somebody's caught you out with something. And it was the news that Stuart had taken his own life. And I remember just getting. I flew into Dundee, and I remember just breaking down. You know, like and this, the worst torrent of tears that somebody like sure had died and there's a part of me always sort of thinks if I had stayed in Big Country could I have made a difference to you know how he might have seen his music how he would have been in the band and could have was there anything that I might have been able to do which have would have got over got him over some of the worst periods and of course there wasn't you know but the part of you thinks that and feels that and, and assumes that type and that part of guilt but like um Stuart Adams' death was something that profoundly affected me and and it was just one of these things that I found so hard to process. And I went to the show in the Carnegie Hall, which Richard came up and introduced and compared. I couldn't play in the the subsequent band that we put together, you know, for the benefit. And I really wish I had, was able to do that now, but 
Mr. Big Guy, every day, he was one of the most important people in my life. And gosh, you know, what a guitarist, what a musician, and what it was some experience, even just to be part of that, just for a, a year or so, as it was back in the early 1980s. Now, those are beautiful words, and you, you led into the last question I was going to ask you, which was about Stuart's passing, and uh, because I knew that you had a part in that memorial. Um, that, that's amazing. I, I think the last thing that I would, I would have for you guys real quickly is, um, you know, we had, I showed one, a picture earlier, but had a, had a number of these um, old pictures. So what, showing this picture of you guys, I'm just wondering, you know, what, what kind of feelings does this conjure up, you know, to end on a celebratory note for what you guys experienced and what you brought to the band? Because you really do. I mean, I know your time in the band was short, but the fact that, I hope that the fact that we are so keen on speaking with you and so many were excited about this, you know, let you know how much you are appreciated in, in, in the big country world and that your, your contributions are respected and loved. And, uh, you know, even you talking about that song, Ring Out Bells, know it well. We all know it well. We, we love it. And uh, all this, the stuff that you guys did, you really laid a, a strong foundation for what was to come. So we, we all owe you a debt of gratitude for that. But just curious what you think of this, what this photo means to you and, and even where this was. <laughs> I think that is in the old church because um, we're all wearing jerseys and everything. I mean, Bruce was Bruce was the comedy chap. He is an um, an extremely funny person and kept us going. I just think when you when you join a band, the camaraderie is the best thing. It's like playing for football in a football team. You know that's why that's part of the reason that you do it is you get there, you're all focused on what you're doing, and it's you all become one. And it was just a great time. Um, it was hard there was a lot of work um which it wasn't a problem but um no we all had a common come and go and it was it was great fun it was really <laughs> i'm looking at that picture i think jesus out here um <laughs> but, uh, no it was it was great fun i mean it was interesting playing a band with your brother i mean that that always brings in another dynamic for for the pair of us because we 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 know each other so well, um, and again, sometimes we argue. We would argue more because we were brothers, um, and we weren't shy in arguing because we were brothers in front of the the bands. You think, what the hell's going on there? But that 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 brought some of the dynamic as well. But yeah, it was good times. I I God, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got no explanation for that photo whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment. Why? <laughs> Well, guys, I know that we've hit the time here. Um, again, can't so much more we could have asked you because that's just how that's just how we are. But if if any time you know you're able to come back, we're, we'd love to have you. But if not, even if not, you've added so much to the story, and we just can't tell you how much we appreciate it and how much uh, how much of a thrill it was to speak to you guys, both of you guys. You're held in very high esteem among big country fans, and uh, yeah, so thank you for making the time to do this. Really meant a lot to us. Yeah, really well, enjoyed it. enjoyed it. It was fantastic speaking about these things and it just takes, takes you right back, you know, and fantastic memories. Mm. Yeah, no, it's been really enjoyable, cathartic, as they say. So thank you for that. And it seems a long time ago, but when you start talking about it, it's like yesterday. Um, really enjoyed it. Thank you.
right, so we just had this really great conversation with the Wisher brothers. I, for one, was thrilled with how it went. We, we set it up for two hours, thinking that I thinking that would be a short amount of time. They gave us at the, at the beginning, when I said two hours, I saw their eyes kind of grow wide and Pete said, you know, I probably only have a little over an hour. So we had to adjust some of our minutiae related questions, but I think we got a lot of good stuff in there. What do you guys think of that? I think we did. Um, now you wisely asked them before we got into things, how long do you think we have? And that kind of turned out to be true. So I think we adjusted the questions uh, accordingly. So, so we asked a lot of input on the Facebook group, a lot of good questions there. We were never going to get into all of that with the time we had available. So I think we covered the obvious things, the Alice Cooper tour, the songwriting parts, their farewell with the band, the early days, and kind of, uh, that, that's kind of what you do for the hour. And then we'll see if they come back, maybe for the 20th anniversary, they'll be back. Because we'll still be doing this yeah, absolutely. in 10 more years. So uh, so we have something to look forward to there too. But but this was awesome. I mean, they, I was, um, I'm always blown away by how happy people are to share things. Uh, they um, remembered quite a bit of things. <laughs> it's like they say, uh, it's been a while since, since it all happened, but you start talking about it and suddenly you're back again. And uh, I kind of felt almost like I was back there again with them. So I was, I was blown away. Yeah, me too. Me too. And Stuart, we, we got to, we got to finally confirm, I think, that that version of Harvest Home that you heard in your childhood was the first incarnation of Big Country. That's pretty awesome. Not many people get to hear that. Well, I'd wait 44 years to hear that, Tom, so absolutely <laughs> delighted. Um, and it was, it was great to hear their perspective on the whole setup of the band and how Stuart approached them and so on. That was, that was really good. And, um, it was full of passion. That's what I think I got from it. Um, they were very passionate about and how it affected their lives. I think that, that came across so well. And um, yeah, there was a lot of meaning there. I appreciate really them coming on. And I was so glad you got to ask that question because you've been telling me about walking past that hall and hearing Harvest Home many times. <laughs> so, so I know it's been on your mind. I know. I'll, I'll sleep tonight now. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled we were able to answer that. I know how important those those questions are uh, for people for sure but yeah all in all i thought this was really great and i was serious when i said at the beginning i was always so interested in you know fine like kind of like for us in, in the kiss world you know when we get so obsessed with like this one short period of the band you know when, when someone new was in the band or they did this tour that nobody knew about or hardly anyone knew about those things become the the things that we want to know about the most so i always wanted to know about this portion of the band there's kind of a magical quality about it um, to me uh, that it just still came through. So this meant a lot to me uh, to be able to speak with those guys. And um, hopefully it meant a lot to all you guys listening as well. Any final words before we, before we go? How about you? Yes. I, I learned today, that, what? I learned today that if you say wishers with a Norwegian accent, it sounds like wizards. <laughs> well, they are wizards. I said wizards. Come on. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm not sure we need half an hour. Do you think so? Uh, nah. Nah. Uh, 
Well, you know, we say that every time. So. Yeah, we do. It's uh, say, <laughs> clear to evening. You know how many times, I, Stuart, I've heard, um, we're not going to need two hours. And then three hours later, we're sitting there. Oh, we, we better wrap this up. That's, that's your normal opening gambit to each podcast, <laughs> is it not? <laughs> um, so Stuart, I, I saw your, your message. Is the sound distorted for me as well that you're hearing? Because I, I was hearing... Oh, you're clear. Okay. I was hearing fine. You're clear, but it's fine. It's fine. was distorted. Yeah. Well, when, when, when Spine was talking, yeah, it was distorted on my end, too. You need to tell me this as we go along. You're distorted. Yeah. Your voice sounds good now, by the way, Swine. Yeah, I can change when I know I need to. But do you have a distortion setting that you, that you switch to sometimes? No. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's magical, the, like that, wizards. That, that's what? the microphone is embedded in the beard. Sound. Yeah, it's a little. Uh, you, you just want, move it a little. You want to redo anything? It's up to you. Yeah, I'll redo all of my parts, please. I'm gonna do them line by line now, and you can just insert them. Let's go. Let's do Video it. Video and everything. Yeah, we can do that. So I started by taking a swig of this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, <laughs> no, I, I trust your audio wizardry and uh, you know what is, will be. Can you explain how you decided to name the band Big Country? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, where it came from was, uh, I had an idea or something based on the songs, instead of just being straight songs as such, each one to be a type of adventure story, whether it be within yourself or out with. And uh, to me, that's some place that's wide open and new and for us to explore. How do you view the prospect of going and knocking on all the doors again and, and, and no, they'll be being nice to A&R men and all sorts of <laughs> They'll knock on our door when we start playing, I would think. You think the tour's crucial to this, This the, the support on the Alice Cooper? Well, I, I just I think the band's just got so much going for it. It's just the feeling I get from the, from the group is just really great. We're going to have to leave it there. Yeah, we wish right. you your, your new and big future with Big Country. And um, I'm sure Scotland will be eager to see what happens after February the 4th. Good luck on the tour, Stuart thanks, Adamson and Peter Wishart. Thanks Thank very much, much for coming in this afternoon. And we'll leave you with that one I mentioned. We'll be back next Sunday at half past three. But meanwhile, this is Big Country for the first time on radio with The Lost Patrol.
between our lips sings the missionary's tune. A man with open arms from their faces half away. Observe as we approach that we have not come to say. We stand as thick as vines, though the fruit is thrown away. There is no beauty here, friends of death and life and Listening to The Sunday Club, which was presented by Malcolm Wilson with the Radio Scotland Teenage Team.